Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 22nd of June 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News, your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by Vanessa Beely and our nursing correspondent, Debbie Evans. Now, but I was just going to say Vanessa's coming in on a remote link and we Hope that stands up for the news today. Yes. Uh, okay, well, let's get straight on with uh, cost of living and inflation and so on. Inflation, as everybody will know, has uh, not reduced this month. Uh, it's up to 9.1%. Uh, but perhaps more worryingly, uh, the UNS here saying the price of goods leaving factories rose at their fastest rate in 45 years, uh, driven by widespread food price rate rises, while the cost of raw materials leapt at their fastest rate on record. Um, so... Uh, they're saying that uh, uh, they're expecting, well, we know that the Bank of England has said that they're expecting inflation to head towards 11% uh, in the next few months. Uh, we generally view that as being an underestimate. Uh, so situation isn't going to get any better. Uh, but let's bring on this organization, uh, Cornwall Insight. And they're talking about energy prices and the uh, energy price cap. Now, we know that the energy price cap is going to go up in September. Uh, but... Uh, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, we reported that uh, the Ofgem, the regulator, was going to start looking at uh, rev revising its energy uh, price cap uh, every uh, three months instead of every six months. It looks like that is exactly what's going to happen. So uh, if we put that back on screen there for a second, Cornwall Insight is saying uh, that uh, data reported on Monday evening from, from them forecast that the, the tariff cap uh, for energy in quarter one, 2023, will rise to £3,003 per year. So if we look at the graph that they produced, you can see that uh, they've got uh, some historic price caps on there. And each of the early sections of that, the first half of the graph, are on a six-monthly basis. But once we head towards uh, the end of this year, it goes to quarterly. Now, Ofgem, of course, said this is so that uh, consumers can benefit from uh, price falls, but everybody knows that that's not true. It's so that the producers or the suppliers can benefit from price rises. So they're expecting January to March is going to be £3,003 per year. Uh, and then by the time uh, we get to uh, uh, later in the year, uh, they're per perceiving that it's going to fall again slightly, but only slightly. I think that is not correct either. But nonetheless, Ofgem is being urged, according to this headline in Energy Live News, to abandon the plans to introduce a quarterly price cap. Uh, that's unlikely to happen as well. I think that is in the bag and it's going to be the case. Um, the, natural, the, the result of that, of course, Brian has been sorry, did you have a... I, I was just going to remark on that previous one, Mike. I noticed that Dr. Craig Lowry, who's the gentleman who's... Uh, who's quoting, uh, of course, starts off with, with the geopolitical events in Russia causing significant barriers to energy flow. So yes. the uh, political hook is in there straight away as to who the, you know, this is all the Russians' problem. Yes, it's all, all being caused by those nasty Russians. Uh, the result of all this is, of course, the strikes, which are taking place on the railways this week, uh, and all the other various people that are balloting at the, mo at the moment, including the post post office, or sorry, the Royal Mail, uh, but also teachers and in fact, including supply teachers. So uh, the headlines today suggesting that uh, schools may be forced to close. Whether this happens or not, of course, is all dependent on the timing because we're heading into the summer break, which is relatively long for teachers. So probably any industrial action there isn't going to happen until after uh, the summer break. But nonetheless, it is looking like a fairly unpleasant uh, summer for 
many, many people. I, I find this fascinating, Mike. We have so much trouble suddenly flaring up in every every sector. And to me, uh, to me, there's there's a hand stirring the pot behind this. We've no sooner got over the shock of the war in Ukraine than all of a sudden we're into all of these uh, major strikes and unhappiness. To me, there's some something agitating this whole system. We're not we're not in a calm state in this in in the country. We're in a state of breakdown, and that breakdown to me appears to be orchestrated. Uh, well, and and uh, the core of it is uh, uh, the economy, of course, and uh, the impact of this goes right across society. And one area that it uh, uh, involves is uh, hospital treatment, and then the resulting deaths from lack of hospital treatment. So let's just bring the latest. Uh, deaths statistics on from the Office for National Statistics. And if you look at the right-hand side of that graph, uh, you'll find that we continue to be experiencing uh, excess mortality. But you'll notice that the, uh, the blue sections of that graph are getting smaller. Uh, now, it's, the ONS acknowledges in the press release that uh, uh, doctors are now uh, deciding whether somebody has uh, died having come into contact with COVID in some way. Uh, through symptoms, uh, and there's no longer a requirement for a positive test. So um, that perhaps explains why we're seeing uh, fewer deaths labelled as being COVID, because doctors aren't uh, running tests, and therefore the false positives aren't there, and they're relying on symptoms. Uh, and of course, uh, <laughs> what are they? What are the symptoms anyway? But anyway, uh, the point here is excess mortality. So ONS reporting 11,740 deaths, 42 deaths registered in England and Wales uh, in the week ending. 10th of June 2022, that was 17.5% above the five-year average. Uh, and so that is 1,753 excess deaths. But the key point here is that the five-year average that they're using this year is not the five-year average that they used last year. Uh, the five-year average that they're using this year now includes uh, the peaks from the, uh, from the, the last two years of uh, COVID, so-called COVID deaths which means that the five-year average is higher this year than it was last year. And despite that, we still have 1,753 excess deaths uh, in, uh, in the week up until uh, the 10th of June, 2022. Most of those uh, were in private homes uh, once again, uh, then hospitals, then uh, care homes, and then in other settings. Um, so people being left to die in their homes uh, and no concern, it seems, from the government or from any politicians. Indeed, I don't know whether Debbie's got any comments on that one. Well, I mean, we 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 did say that this was probably going to happen, and it's in, it's interesting, you know, to know that the um, excess mortality is still rising, and yet, um, according to the government statistics, the majority of us are meant to be vaccinated. So you have to wonder why all these people are getting sick, and it's June. You know, this is June, this is summertime. People traditionally are feeling better now. So we need to be questioning these statistics. And all I can say is thank goodness for Mike being able to interpret the data because I'm not a data cruncher. So unless someone interprets it for us and shows it like that, it's very difficult to actually see it. Well, that's a really good point, uh, Debbie, because in the text of their press release, uh, they say on one hand, uh, that there are 284 deaths uh, involving COVID-19. And then two paragraphs later, they say that there are uh, 334 deaths involving COVID-19. So I'm not sure in, that in my world, 224 equals 300 and 
33, whatever that was. So, so, but anyway, the, the, I've asked them for clarification of that, whether it's just a, a, a typographical error or what, but, uh, but anyway, we'll, we'll let people know what that is. Yeah. Um, okay, let's uh, move on then to the issue of uh, disinformation. Um, and uh, well, Vanessa, let's welcome you to the program with this headline from The Guardian. Uh, network of Syria conspiracy theorists identified. And uh, well, you seem to be the ringleader. Yeah. Are you able to hear us, Vanessa? No, I think, okay. We're, we're, <laughs> we're going to have uh, technical problems today, it seems, uh, because uh, Vanessa is in uh, Serbia at the moment uh, in a hotel. Um, and uh, can, you, can you hear us, Vanessa? We just say for our viewers, we can see Vanessa very clearly yes. and she's looking curiously at the screen, but apparently there's no sound at the moment. You can hear me a bit better. I switched to the mobile, which seems to be the internet. Scene. Yeah. Yeah. I... Speak again. No, I think I think we're just going to have oh, to okay. we're just going to have to move on with it because uh, we're not going to uh, get a reliable connection, which yeah, is sure. really really unfortunate. But anyway, if we put this uh, Guardian article back on screen again, uh, net network of uh, Syria conspiracy theorists identified a network of more than two dozen conspiracy theorists, frequently backed by a coordinated Russian campaign and thousands of disinformation tweets uh, to distort reality of the Syrian conflict and deter interventions uh, by the international community, a new analysis reveals. Um, and so uh, who is behind this new analysis? Well, it is uh, uh, ISD Global uh, and their partners at the Syria campaign. Uh, this is the key person, Jasmine El-Gamal. Uh, we've been working on this deep dive into disinformation in Syria since January, full report enclosed in this article, and we'll be highlighting the findings and recommendations starting tomorrow. Watch this space uh, and pointing to that Guardian article. Um, so who is uh, uh, Jasmine? Uh, here she is. Uh, she's at ISD Global, former Middle East advisor at the Department of Defense in the United States, a mental health advocate, uh, apparently works with CNN, uh, France 24, MSNBC, Washington Post, Time, Newsweek, uh, Newsline Mag. Uh, so. So she's in, she's in with all the big names, in which case she can only report what is satisfactory to these organisations. She's never going to challenge them because they're clearly, you know, she's on their pay, payroll. Yes. So let's uh, just zoom in on, on her uh, bio here. Is currently a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council. So there's a NATO connection uh, where she focuses primary on, primarily on Middle East policy as well as the role of narratives in the radicalization cycle. She's a former Pentagon official with over 15 years experience in national security and in cross-cultural communications. Uh, El Gamal served as a Middle East policy advisor under four US secretaries of defense, as well as a special assistant for national security affairs to three undersecretaries of defense. A first generation American of Egyptian heritage, El Gamal has worked throughout her career uh, to incorporate intercultural and interfaith understanding and mutual respect in national security policy. She holds an MS from Georgetown University School of Foreign Science and a BS in marketing from Clarkstown University, uh, sorry, Clarkson University, a BS in marketing, interesting. Uh, she is also a graduate of the New York Film Academy and co-producer of the 2017 short documentary film Unwelcome, which was an official selection uh, at over 10 international film festivals. 
So this is uh, what she is. And uh, well, what do we say about that? Well, I, I would believe she's a state asset is what I would believe. Yes. Like, um, you can't have a background of working so closely with the American government and insecurity issues and then be independent. At one point there, she's talking about um, uh, mutual respect somewhere. Sorry, I can't see it on screen. Uh, oh, there we are. Intercultural and interfaith understanding and mutual respect. Well, you can't be doing that if you're following a, a, a biased position in support of what the US foreign policy is. And that's clearly what, what her whole career has been based on. It's not about being an independent journalist. She she is sided and clearly sided with the US. And it's also got that she's been working with onlythroughus.org, a Washington DC based nonprofit initiative that seeks to quote, counter fear-based policies in the wake of terror attacks. Yes. So this lady's an asset. Uh, 100% and uh, she is absolutely targeting Vanessa Bailey. Uh, so let we have a short piece of video here from Kaforgam Masin and uh, just gives a little bit of, of a summary of what's going on here. Let's just have a listen to this. The decline of the mainstream media is real and it is happening all over the world due to the dishonesty of mainstream media journalists who work for corporate outlets that get funding from billionaires with special interests and governments that intervene in the editorial guidelines. That's why we witness the rise of alternative media and independent journalists who rely on their followers to finance their work. Although these independent journalists gain very little financially, their reporting gains more credibility among the general public because they are not obliged to say anything that is not factual. Among these journalists are Vanessa Billy and Eva Bartlett, who gained popularity, especially after the CIA regime changed war on Syria, as both were investigating underground, while their colleagues in the mainstream media were reporting from the bars of Beirut. There is no doubt that the mainstream media has enormous resources and funding, but the ordinary people are losing faith in them after the onslaught against Iraq, Libya, Afghanistan and Syria, where the mainstream media was by large complicit with the governments that waged the wars based on a pack of lies. Therefore, any reporting the corporate media posts nowadays on Ukraine is forcing the people to take it with a grain of salt. Therefore, the mainstream media is busy nowadays writing hit pieces against independent journalists and calling them conspiracy theorists. Such as the article in The Guardian, Russia-backed network of Syria conspiracy theorists identified. While the title initially claimed these journalists are backed by Russia, the newspaper was forced to remove any reference that they are backed by Russia because there is no evidence for that, let alone the rest of the hit piece that is allegedly based on data collected by the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, which itself is funded by Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, George Soros' Open Society Foundations, the governments of Australia, Denmark, Holland, Finland, Germany, the EU, the UK, New Zealand, Norway, Sweden, the United States, and many other foundations with special interests. But somehow, the author of the article failed to mention that the Institute for Strategic Dialogue is backed by powerful foundations and governments, although initially the newspaper accused the journalists of being backed by Russia. Funny, huh? And I always wonder, do the authors of such hit pieces and their backers realize that they are only giving more credibility to these independent journalists and inviting more people to follow their work? So it's a real shame Vanessa isn't here to, to sort of comment on that, but I thought that was an excellent summary of what's going on. Really excellent. Perhaps we could, we could say instead of people are losing trust, they've lost trust. But what is clear is that the quality of reporting across social media 
is is increasing almost on a weekly basis. So um, more and more people are putting out more professional reports. They're backing it up with facts and information. And of course, very often they are using uh, social media reports from in-country. So Vanessa, of course, um, has been brave enough to be on the ground in Syria reporting when uh, there wasn't sort of sign of a BBC journalist. Uh, but it's also true to say that we're getting reports, accurate reports via social media. And that's also figuring in the war in Ukraine, that you can find out what's happening in a local area by the fact that good people, Ukrainian people or whichever side they're fighting for, are making those reports. Well, in, in that little video clip, Gavork said, uh, you know, uh, the, the journalists were in the bars of Beirut. And, yes, and in many cases, that. that was absolutely true. But where they did go to Syria or when they did go to Syria, of course, they were exclusively embedded with the terrorist rebel organizations. Uh, and, uh, and that needs to be taken into account as well. It does. But I, I can see uh, Debbie on screen. And I'm going to say, Debbie, and of course, you have highlighted in the last few days that the UN itself running an incredible media disinformation campaign by the use of what it calls trusted mentors. So people who were selected and groomed in order to run on social media, putting out the UN or governmental policies. Yeah, the UN is huge in this whole thing, as is the World Bank. And I know that we're gonna be looking at that in depth and I've done a lot of work on the United Nations, but I mean, you've only got to look at their, um, I think it was Leonardo DiCaprio, who was a messenger of peace for the United Nations. I think George Clooney was as well. And then as we go deeper into trusted messengers, we can see that it cascades down from your celebrities to your pop stars, to sports people, to your GPs, to your doctors, and then ultimately your trusted messengers within your family. And this is all seemed to be starting in the United Nations. And it doesn't it affects 25 entities in the United Nations as well. So this is a huge, big deal. It's part of their, what they call their quintet of change. But we'll come on to that in another news as well. The United Nations quintet of change. Yes. Okay. Well, uh, just to, to finish off the uh, section on Vanessa, then uh, if we look at uh, this website, if you, I mean, I do recommend people to go and have a look at this website. So they have set up an, a whole website just to, to carry out this attack. It's headlined Deadly Disinformation, How Online Conspiracies About Syria Cause Real-World Harm. Um, there's a petition uh, involved with this. You need to read the text of the petition as well. It is quite incredible. But just to demonstrate the sheer bloody-minded hypocrisy of the uh, British government, uh, let's bring uh, this gent on screen, who's James Karaoke, who was speaking once again in the uh, Security Council. This is the UK's Deputy Permanent Representative to the United Nations speaking in the Security Council. Uh, and uh, here's what he had to say. Uh, Digital and social media platforms are powerful vectors for pro propaganda, disinformation and hate speech. We note efforts made by social media companies, I should say, to address this. Uh, we call on them to strengthen uh, their work in this regard but hold on to your hats folks it gets better he said secondly article 20 of the international covenant on civil and political rights expressly prohibits any propaganda for war and any advocacy of national racial or religious hatred that constitutes incitement of discri to discrimination 
hostility or violence. So uh, I'm going to say here that the biggest pro propagandists for war with Russia have been the British government and its fully trained uh, mainstream press, Brian, and the hypocrisy in that statement is off the charts. But then he ends with this sentence, hate speech can also be a war crime. Now, what's, where is this all leading to? Um, we believe that uh, the, the attacks on uh, alternative journalists or independent journalists, including Vanessa and others, um, are leading to an effort uh, to, bring internet, to bring, bring legal charges against people like this uh, for, uh, well, war, crim war crimes is how the British government is attempting to, uh, to frame this. Uh, and it would be a frame uh, if, they, if they do head in that direction. I think they are going to head in this direction, Mike. It's quite clear that anybody that dares to speak up against the uh, UK government, or if you're in the US, the US government, is is now being regarded as an enemy of the state. Yes. I think this is becoming uh, more and more clear. But of course, uh, it doesn't end with closing down people who are making a counter-narrative on what's happening in uh, overseas politics, geopolitics it's ultimately going to be used to silence anybody who dares criticise the government on any policy they want to enact. And of course, when you use the term counter-narrative, you mean tell the truth. <laughs> Indeed. Yes. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, what better example for uh, the propaganda than to go to CNN? I just chose this as one of many articles I could have picked up. Uh, but here's a report, June the 21st from CNN. Two months on, Russia is still struggling to capture this small Ukrainian city. Well, what city are they talking about? The uh, city is Severodonetsk. This is uh, in the eastern Donbass region in Ukraine. And have a look at how they frame this. It's really, it's amusing in a very dark way. It's been nearly two months since Russian forces began their assault on the city of Severodonetsk. But despite overwhelming firepower, they still can't dislodge determined Ukrainian resistance nor cut the supply lines that provide the city's remaining defenders with a drip feed of weapons and ammunition. The fierce Ukrainian defense of Severodonetsk, despite heavy losses, has forced the Russians to concentrate firepower on a relatively small area and held up their efforts to seize the 10% of the Luhansk region they still not, do not control. Now, the reality is that the Russians have uh, held Severodonetsk for uh, several days now. Uh, there is a pocket of resistance, which is uh, um, in the Azot chemical plant. But what the Russians have done is surrounded it, and they are now pounding it with uh, artillery. And ultimately, the defenders, believed to number about 2,000, are going to die, or they're going to surrender, as happened with the Azov plant in Mariupol. So the reality is nothing uh, like the C CNN has reported here. Uh, small city, well, not quite, because originally uh, Severodonets had a population of about 100,000. But the key point is uh, thousands of dug-in Ukrainian troops in a, in a highly urbanized area, industrial area, is a very difficult task for any military force to crack. And uh, the Russians have actually been doing a very methodical job of taking the resistance apart. So CNN, this is pure propaganda. Mm. Where can we get real information as to what's happening? Well, I've chosen over the last few days a number of different websites. I'm going to still encourage people to 
um, choose whichever one they, they want to go for. In fact, choose a selection. Uh, I've come back to Defence Politics Asia here because I believe that their analysis has some interesting nuances, which are very important. But this is showing part of the, um, uh, the Eastern Donbass front around Severodonetsk and Luhansk, which is up in the top right of your screen. And uh, if you listen to the narrative, which is very detailed, it's showing you where the information is coming from. It's very clear that uh, Severodonetsk is in the hands of the Russians and the fighters are now encircled in that Azov chemical plant. And of course, they are going to die or they're going to surrender at the moment. The West and certainly Zelensky and his team doesn't care about that. We just add a bit more to that uh, map if we pop it back. Here we are. Uh, so the other thing to note is that over the last few days, the fighting has now really intensified on many areas of the front, uh, not just in the, uh, in the east, but also in the Kharkov, uh, Kharkov region and also on the southern front. So the fighting is growing and this is a constant feature. The Russian forces simply encircling persistent defence by the Ukrainians, moving on and then slowly suppressing uh, what's left. So it's uh, a very methodical, it's a very, uh, how do we describe it, professional military approach. And the Western narrative at the moment has just become ridiculous in trying to make out that the uh, Ukrainians are still winning. In the last few days, uh, this, however, is a very important uh, um, action, which has received virtually no reports in mainstream uh, uh, media, but this is in relation to a little island uh, called Snake Island, which is down off the uh, southern coast of Ukraine. It's down a bit from Odessa. And in the last couple of days, Ukraine launched a massive attack on the island, which now houses a, a sophisticated Russian air defense system. Uh, the narrative by Defense Politics Asia included uh, reports from the Russian Ministry of Defense. It's uh, corroborated with reports from the Ukrainians. So we know this took place. But what appears to have happened is a massive attack using long range rockets uh, with UAV drones in the area, uh, but also shelling from closest proximity land base in Ukraine. And despite this coordinated attack, uh, the Russians uh, held it off and shot down um, many of these missile systems. And as I said to you earlier today, uh, Mike, in my opinion, the Russians are demonstrating military capability, which the West simply does not have well, with, the, with Russians demonstrating this with the use of the uh, modern systems. But a key thing in this report is that the US appeared to be providing coordinating and targeting support by means of a Global Hawk drone that the Russians claim was a very high level. I think this is highly likely. And then we actually say, is this really Ukraine fighting the Russians or is this actually the Americans sitting in the background using this kind of sophisticated drone to coordinate the Ukrainian attack, which ultimately failed. But we don't even know it's the US military coordinating this because it could easily be a private military contractor yes so very dangerous stuff and i think it's it, the the defense by the russians truly incredible 
So if we summarise things in part four of our report, the key headline remains ignore the military reality. The West does not want to talk truth. Um, so the Ukrainians still have no effective air cover or air defence. They've clearly been given more Su-29 aircraft, probably coming from Poland. They're being shot down together with helicopters and drones, and that's happening on a daily basis, not reported in the West. The Ukrainians are still sticking to indefensible positions. This is largely the Zelensky political regime, and those men are simply going to die. In many cases, the troops sent to defend these positions and hold them only have light arms, so there's no question that they, they are going to fail. Um, the Russian withdrawal in Kharkiv has been replaced by aggressive Russian advances and Ukrainian retreats. And this is giving rise to unrest in the Ukrainian military structure, none of which is being reported in Western mainstream reports. And uh, the Ukrainian separatist, separatist troops are continuing to advance in the critical eastern Donbass, backed by Russian troops and these massive artillery strikes. And this is a key point uh, because in the Western media, we're led to believe it's Ukrainians fighting Russians. But of course, the reality is the bulk of the frontline action is being carried out by the separatist mm. Ukrainian troops and the Russians are providing support via those artillery systems. Nobody wants to discuss this. Uh, if we move on, uh, the key bit is that the Western propaganda is now undermining the West's own position on Ukraine because so many people are believing the false reality that Ukraine is somehow winning when they are in fact losing, and this is becoming more obvious by the day. And uh, this one, um, we are hearing more and more of this, that Western military forces on the ground, and that may be uh, special forces from U UK or the US, are increasingly unaware of the state of the battle due to the fact the Ukrainians aren't telling them what's going on. And this appears to be due to the fact the Ukrainians quite rightly are becoming suspicious of their allies. They're not trusting the UK and the US, so they're not giving them information. They're withholding intelligence. Then we've got the breakdown and confusion on the battlefield as the Ukrainian structure falls apart. We've got the drones being shot down on a daily basis, and there's general fog of war and confusion. So we'll add this one and then just a, a summary. I think this is quite important. The Ukrainians are running low on ammunition. Again, no question to this, but also the Western weapons largely ineffective. And one of the latest reports is that the triple uh, seven howitzers are breaking down and they're breaking down because they were never designed for protracted use in an artillery battle. They were due for lightweight, small engagements. And these things are simply falling apart because of the hammering the Ukrainians are giving them too few HIMARS rocket systems to make a difference. And uh, it's now apparent that US, UK, NATO and the EU are backpedaling, they're reversing away. So Zelensky appears to be unaware of this at the moment. This is the view from uh, many people inside Ukraine. Well, he's uh, unaware, isn't he? Because Boris keeps going over there and giving him hugs. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, like overcomes Boris, a man known for his honesty in the UK, tells him, don't worry, Zelensky, everything's OK. We're going to train 10,000 troops in four months and that's going to hold the, the Russians at bay. More nonsense. 
but this is the reality. Russia is winning. There's no question of this. The US and Western military supplies are exhausted and Russian economic sanctions are dividing Europe. And uh, we just end that uh, once in control of this eastern Donbass, which is an economic zone, this is why it's so important. This is not the farmlands of Ukraine. This is largely the industrial heart of Ukraine. Once Russia has, has finished off uh, Severodonets and Lizychansk, that is the adjoining city, they are going to be deciding where they want to go next in Ukraine. And there's going to be nothing the Ukrainians can do to stop it. So we wait to see where that heads, Mike. Yes. Uh, well, uh, everybody will know that uh, Russia is a huge country. Um, let's bring up a map of Europe here, or part of Europe anyway. Uh, you see uh, Germany and Norway, Poland, uh, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, uh, Belarus and Russia. And of course, we've got Ukraine at the bottom uh, right hand corner there. But there's a little part of Russia which is split off from the rest. Uh, it's here and it's uh, the so-called uh, Kaliningrad Oblast. Um, and well, that's been hitting the news in the last day or so uh, because Lithuania has decided unilaterally to uh, cut off the uh, access to uh, Kaliningrad from Russia to deliver certain types of goods. Um, so Lithuania has banned some goods through its territory. Uh, the only way to deliver these under normal circumstances is by rail. Uh, and that includes coal, metals, uh, construction materials. Uh, so around 50% of the normal uh, supply of goods that are going to Kaliningrad, uh, that has stopped. Uh, now that has resulted in people in the country uh, panicking and panic buying in particular. And so they're now staring in the face of food shortages and so on as well. Um, so uh, if we just put the, the map back on screen, as you can see, it is landlocked in the sense that uh, it has no direct contact with uh, with Belarus or Russia. Uh, and so the only option really is perhaps to ship things around from St. Petersburg in the top right hand corner there. Um, and uh, well, we'll come on to that in a second. But let's first of all, look at what uh, Joseph Burrell uh, had to say. He's, of course, the EU High Representative on Foreign Affairs and Security. And he said, in accordance with EU sanctions, there are imports and export restrictions that apply in relations with certain goods. Uh, Lithuania is doing nothing else but implementing the guidelines provided by the European Commission. If they transit through EU territory for some goods, it's prohibited. Uh, and uh, so that's his justification for it. Uh, Dmitry Peskov had this to say, uh, this decision, indeed unprecedented, is a violation of everything and then some. Uh, we understand that it's connected to the relevant decision of the European Union to extend the sanctions of transit, the transit of goods. Uh, we also consider this unlawful. Uh, so the Russians very clear on that. And here is uh, Nikolai uh, Prochuskov, uh, who is the secretary of Russia's uh, Security Council, saying Russia will certainly respond to such hostile actions. Appropriate measures are being worked out and their consequences will have a serious negative impact on the population of Lithuania. That's quite a strong statement. Uh, I, well, I'm, I have to say I'm not surprised because essentially Lithuania is being used as a pawn by the EU for another um, poke at the, at the Russian bear. And this response tells me the Russians are going to do something which is really going to hurt. Um, I, I think Lithuania is very naive if it thinks it can do this and it's going to get support from the EU or NATO if things turn really bad, I don't think it's going to happen. 
but uh, yeah, who knows what's being planned. Uh, and if we just finish this little segment with uh, uh, Anton uh, Alakanov, who's the uh, governor of Kaliningrad, Kaliningrad uh, he's saying our ferries will handle all the cargo. At the moment, they, they only have one, as far as I know. Uh, they're going to have two more by the end of uh, by the autumn, perhaps, or or uh, so clearly they're not getting them from a Scottish uh, ferry supplier. But nonetheless, uh, they're likely to have two more. Even so, that's not really going to replace uh, the the number of trains that were running. So there's still going to be problems. Uh, people in the northeast of Poland are extremely concerned about this situation because uh, they're if if there are food shortages in Kaliningrad, they're expecting uh, people to come uh, over the border. Uh, and this potentially caused problems there. Yeah, so EU sits in the background stirring the pot and uh, everybody else suffers as a result. Yes, it, Yeah. incredible. Uh, now let's just uh, put this article, another incredible article. This is a mail from, uh, the, from March uh, 2022 and the headline was, uh, uh, now Ukraine accuses Putin of kidnapping two and a half thousand children. Kiev makes uh, new Nazi allegations uh, after claiming Ukrainian refugees were being deported from Mariupol uh, to, quote, filtration camps in Russia. Uh, so this is the allegation that was made. And of course, anytime you see these types of allegations, uh, well, you can be pretty sure that uh, they're being accused of something that uh, the, the, West the accusers is doing. Is doing. So, uh, well, it's finally uh, the news is broken uh, and Pretty Patel is going to be announcing this today. Uh, but the Telegraph had it yesterday, uh, Ukrainian children will be allowed to come to Britain unaccompanied. Well, uh, I'm pointing at the screen, Mike, because, of course, the last time we were reporting about children coming to Britain unaccompanied was the Syrian children. We're coming on to that. Yeah, well. So so anyway, let's put it back on screen. Uh, Ukrainian children will be allowed to come to Britain unaccompanied. Uh, so uh, unaccompanied children, says the Telegraph, are to be allowed to come to the UK under changes by Pretty Patel to help hundreds of stranded teenagers seeking refuge in Britain. They'll be allowed to come to the UK if they have permission from a parent or legal guardian uh, and the Ukrainian government uh, under the plan due to be announced today. Uh, until now, un only under 18s who are travelling with or reuniting with a parent or legal guardian in the UK have been allowed to come to the UK under the Homes for Ukraine scheme, the policy has left more than 500 Ukrainian children stranded uh, either in Ukraine or other neighbouring countries for more than two months as ministers uh, wrestled with a rescue plan. So as Brian has just mentioned, back in 2016, uh, we were highlighting this uh, report, uh, this report uh, entitled Heading Back to Harm uh, and talking about uh, trafficked and unaccompanied asylum-seeking children going missing from UK care at an alarmingly high rate. Um, so uh, this is from the NGO uh, ECPAT UK uh, and the charity Missing People. And they're saying that uh, in one year, these were mainly Syrian uh, refugees that they were talking about, in one year, nearly 30% of all, ch all child, sorry, all UK child trafficking victims and 13% of unaccompanied children disappeared from care services. 167 of the 590 children suspected or identified as child trafficking victims in the year from September 2014 to 2015 vanished from foster care and care homes across the country. 593 of the 4,744 unaccompanied children placed under the protection of local authorities also went missing at least once in the same time period. And of the 760 trafficked or unaccompanied children who disappeared from care, 207 have never been found. Uh, and they said the majority of child trafficking victims who vanished from care uh, were from 
very well, various countries, including uh, uh, Syria, Afghanistan, Eritrea, Albania, and Vietnam. Uh, but our point in 2016, when this report came out, was that this was well understood by the British government even since 2012, uh, because here is the all-party parliamentary group for runaway and missing children and adults, and the all-party parliamentary group for looked-after children and care leavers, their report from the joint inquiry into children who go missing from care. This is dated June 2012. So trafficking children for fun and profit was understood since 2012. It wasn't dealt with in 2016. It won't be dealt with this time either. Uh, but what this report says is that the deeply inadequate response received, it, received by trafficked children is also particularly worrying. Most child victims go missing within one week of being in care, many within 48, 48 hours, and often before being registered with children's services. Of the trafficked children that uh, make it into local authority care, almost two-thirds of those going missing are never found. Uh, as recent cases like Rochdale have exposed, uh, this remembers from 2012, this is not an if, but a must. We cannot afford to allow these systemic fail failures to continue for a moment longer. But they did, uh, and they will. Uh, and so uh, we're just going to say that uh, Priti Patel is, is announcing, if she hasn't done it already, she's announcing this uh, program today. Uh, and uh, our, I would encourage everybody to be getting involved in asking some serious questions. But it's, it's great, isn't it? 207 children just get missing and... So what? Yeah, who cares? The state carries on. Yes. 207, they went missing, but let's carry on. Let's talk about parties in Westminster. Let the MPs be complaining on portion sizes due to cuts that are uh, finally hitting Westminster itself. But, you know, a few children have gone, a few hundred children have gone missing. This is not a problem. It's, it's easy to understand what's going on here. The UK is one of the uh, states in the world which is clearly facilitating the trafficking of children. Mm. Uh, we had an email, came in a couple of days ago, which you can freeze on screen to see the bit shoot address, but it said, Hi, Brian and team. After watching last week's uh, news, read the school's bill, I thought you might want to watch this video. Uh, it's about UK social services and child tra trafficking from a whistleblower. Con, uh, considering them wanting to change the school's bill, this needs shouting about again and again. And I, uh, I'll just say to the audience, have a look at the video clip. I've had the opportunity to speak to the lady talking and what I found fascinating was her concerns, her evidence, uh, the things she's bringing forward absolutely dovetailed with information, sorry, with information we were receiving in the UK column over 10 years ago. Mm. So I have no doubt that uh, what she's looking at is real, but of course the UK government not interested uh, at all. Meanwhile, the Mail put out this article a couple of days ago, Oldham Council and Police must apologize for failing to protect children from grooming and sexual exploitation, damning report fines. So what, what is apologizing gonna do for this? Uh, this is just a joke, yes. Mike, isn't it? It's it's. It's a sop to the public when the reality is these children going missing. Missing and never found. And Where have they gone? Yeah. Okay, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org uh, and you would be very, very welcome as a member. We do need your support. Uh, we very much appreciate it. Or you could uh, pick something up at the uh, UK Column shop. Uh, some nice women's t-shirts there, for example. 
yes. and bags indeed. Yes, indeed. And, um, which are going very well, we should say. For, for whatever reason, people seem to really like these bags. Yes. So if you haven't got one, uh, get in touch. Uh, and uh, if you do find anything on the various platforms, of course, please do share it. Okay, excellent. Well, let's move on to the subject of MHRA. We'll bring Debbie Evans on. Debbie, as always, you've been staying hot on the trail of the MHRA and um, things are developing. It's becoming quite interesting because, of course, it's not just us that's pointing a finger saying that really the MHRA is not fit for purpose. No, it isn't. Um, there are other people uh, that are equally as keen as we are to bring the MHRA to account, including a retired police inspector, Colin Edge, who's been doing some amazingly sterling work. But we all need to keep an eye. And can I just say very, very quickly that the April board meeting that went up uh, to, to everyone watching and listening out there, we're only at 900 views and we were at 8,000 in the previous one. So please, 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 could we up the views? Because now we've had the next MHRA board meeting and we do need them to know that we're watching them, as is Colin and plenty of other people doing some sterling work. Yes, well, well done for, for reminding people that the, uh, the simple fact of watching the board meetings gives the M MHRA the correct impression they're being watched. And this is a very powerful tool because all of a sudden everything they say and do and reveal becomes fully accountable to the public. And it's clear that there are a lot of people now, including this policeman, who are digging. So let's have a look at the expose report here. We say, excuse me, well done the expose for this. Retired UK police inspector to MHRA. An independent and transparent investigation is needed into the ongoing threat to human life from COVID injections. Um, this was dated June the 20th, 2022. And we've taken uh, some quotes here. So this one, what I see now is a total unyielding mess of disgrace in those that hold public office, retired UK police inspector Colin Edge wrote in an email to his MP. In a subsequent letter to MHRA's chief executive, he called for a, quote, independent investigation into the ongoing threat to human life from the experimental gene-based therapy injections created for COVID-19. Brevity, speed and accuracy is needed. And he adds, the UK public look forward to your response. I've got some more, but do you want to comment on that, Debbie? I like this man because he's just coming in. Uh, he's using all of his professional training as a police inspector and he's going for the jugular. And I think this has got some real power to it. Yeah, I think he's absolutely phenomenal and he has gone straight where it matters. And I think probably now, knowing what we know now and the struggles that we've had getting information from the MHRA, I think I would go even one further than that because we've been calling for an investigation for so long now. But what we actually need is a stoppage of all of these novel medications and these injections immediately and then the investigation. So I'd like to see the stoppage of it all first and then the investigation started straight after. And perhaps at this point we can just add, because people always say, what is the good news? It's clear that there is a growing uh, group of MPs who are also deeply disturbed by the statistics they're seeing on vaccine adverse reactions and indeed deaths 
and the testimony of individuals that have been affected. And uh, I, I, well, we, we say, what do the MPs do? But clearly in this case, there's a group of them and the size of that group seems to be, seems to be growing. It does seem to be growing, but sadly, Sir Christopher Chope's uh, second reading of his bill has been put back to September, and this is uh, this is unacceptable. You know, the people that are that have sustained vaccine injuries need help today, yesterday, last month, last year, not just to be looked at in Parliament in September. We've got emergency debates going on in Parliament for all sorts of things, whether it be the cost of living or whatever. And yet there's no emergency. There should be an emergency debate on serious adverse reactions. And sadly, Sir Christopher's bill has been put back. And this has upset a lot, and, and quite rightly so, of the people that are suffering vaccine injuries, because it just delays it now right through the summer. Yes, and um, accidental, presumably. Well, I mean, I, I, Debbie, I just, I'll just say uh, this, this is one area where I really think that, that if if everybody isn't on that topic and isn't demanding from their MP to have that bill brought back for a second reading immediately, not in September, then then really people are letting themselves and everybody that's been affected by this down in a very big way. Yeah, I quite agree. And, you know, listening uh, just before we came on air today, listening to Boris Johnson in Prime Minister's Question Time, he is bragging about the Moderna deal that has been done and struck with the UK government. So we've now got a, a billion pound investment from Moderna because they're coming here to the UK to roll out rapid mRNA. So Boris Johnson's more in, interested in talking about that and how we roll on the agenda rather than we are talking about Sir Christopher Chope's bill immediately. So yes, we all need to be writing to our MPs and putting huge pressure on. These people with vaccine injuries can't wait any longer. No, that's absolutely true. Right, let's just give a little bit more about what the uh, policemen have been up to. Um, so this, uh, the report goes on here in July last year, Ed sent a report of his investigation into the use of PCR tests to approximately 450 UK members of parliament, media outlets, UK police associations, and the General Medical Council. And he's quoted here as, as the pandemic, a pandemic progressed, I began my usual and innate search out of curiosity for information that was coming from virologists, doctors, scientists, and statisticians that believe certain aspects of COVID-19 were different to those being presented through government briefings and main media platforms. As an investigator of experience, I was able to separate what I believed was fact from fiction and propaganda. I spent more than cursory hours looking into these issues and over time built up a picture of possibly unfathomable errors that have been made in controlling the freedoms of UK citizens. So this man's using his professional ability. He's not just a member of the public. He's somebody who's fully qualified to investigate. And uh, where did this sort of all go? Well, the article uh, went on here that uh, he wrote to Stephen Lightfoot, chair of the MHRA board meetings. He wrote to Thomas Tugendhat, the MP for Tunbridge and Morling. And on the 9th of June, he wrote to June Rain, chief executive of the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, the MHRA itself. And uh, the, the article says at the time of writing, all three had failed 
to give any response. And that tells me, uh, Debbie, that he was absolutely on target. These individuals can't reply because any reply is now starting to expose the whole lie of what they've been doing. Yeah, fits the picture, doesn't it? It's the pattern now of the MHRA. If they don't like the question, they won't answer it. And some people aren't even getting their um, FOIs acknowledged. You know, they're getting absolute silence. So, uh, but I'm I'm on it <laughs> and I'm determined to get some answers from the MHRA. I won't let them off the hook as I'm sure um, this very tenacious retired police inspector who is, as you've said, you know, he's he investigates crimes. He's trained to do this. And if he is sniffing something that isn't right, then I, for one, who am I to disbelieve him? This man is completely on it. And the MHRA, in my opinion, are not fit for purpose and they should be removed immediately. OK, so you've you've been on their case and uh, what you were able to do is uh, participate in the last board meeting. So if we pop this up on screen, we can see this is this is your own um, grab, if I'm allowed to use that term of, of the uh, of the board meeting itself. So you recorded this. We can see on screen some of the usual participants. Uh, but during the meeting, you were able to have a, a dialogue and uh, uh, in the sideline, I'll read it out and then get to comment. It says, I asked a question at April board meeting and have not received a reply. Dame Rain is mistaken and this is an error. Will this be corrected before the end of the meeting? Please accept the above as a question for this board meeting as it is relevant to the minutes of the last meeting. So you got stuck in straight away asking them questions. Uh, we've got some more um, uh, images of that exchange, but what, what's your overall impression of how the MHRA responds to questions? I was fuming, Brian. I was absolutely fuming. There I was sitting in this Zoom meeting and June Rain was being asked by Stephen Lightfoot. They were, I mean, we as as attendees of the board meeting, we should have received the minutes from the last board meeting, but we never did. And then when Stephen Lightfoot was asking her at the beginning, um, you know, questions from the public uh, have were submitted at the last April board meeting. Can you assure me that everybody has received a reply? June Rain said all questions have been answered. Yes, I can confirm they all did. Well, I haven't received uh, a reply. So for me, this was an anomaly straight away, right at the beginning. And I wanted it corrected in the minutes. So I started a dialogue with them, quite a lengthy dialogue with them, of which some of we'll see, I know that we'll see tomorrow. But um, yeah. Well, I've got, I've got a bit more now. Let's pop a little bit more on screen. So... Um... Uh, here, here, here's the board meeting again. Let's bring in this one. Uh, so you've got a reply. Thank you, Debbie. As vaccines are not on the board's agenda today, I'll note your question and pass it to colleagues for a written response. With regard to your questions from the April board, I understand you've raised a number of questions for answer through a couple of different channels beyond uh, board meetings. The answers to those questions are being collated by colleagues to provide you with one overall response. Uh, Mike, as I read that, I wish I could do the June Rain sing song um, <laughs> primary school um, head teacher 
no disrespect to teachers out there, but you know what I'm talking about, uh, that little sweet voice she produces. So you got fobbed off, but you continued the dialogue, Debbie. Um, so uh, you go back here. Thank you for your response. This is taking a very long time, which is itself unacceptable. The questions are not just related to vaccines, but to safety. Safety is on this board's agenda. The timeframes that MHRA should be following for replies is not being met. Many questions going unanswered for far too long includes complaints, which are also not being handled within 18 working days. When will I receive this one uh, response, please? It's been three months. Thank you. This, this is demonstrate before we put a bit more on screen, Debbie, this is just demonstrating that the MHRA is above the law, apparently. Uh, any other public body who's being challenged for information, particularly when there's already dialogue with the information commissioner, would be on the rack, but apparently not the MHRA. No, exactly. The MHRA off the hook for pretty much everything. And, you know, in the board meeting, they were talking about complaints. And I think they said that there were, there'd be no cases considered by the ombudsman uh, for over five years, but that one referral had been made this year. So I don't know who's that, who's that referral belongs to. I know that I've made a referral to the Information Commissioner's Office, but clearly they don't want to ask questions. So my advice to anybody that's not getting any answers to any questions is book yourself on the next MHRA board meeting and confront them straight on. Because unless you confront them, because every time I sent a message on that board meeting, I could hear the bing of it going in and I could see the board members looking at their messages. So I know they were reading them. So if you want a message to get directly to Jane, Dame June or Stephen Lightfoot or any of the others on the board, then this is the only way to do it. Right, brilliant. So the Bing said your, uh, your um, questions were hitting home. Let's uh, bring in just a couple more to finish this uh, segment. So pow, here it comes and you said, how were all the ADRs and deaths reported in the latest published Pfizer trial data information missed by the MHRA safety issue? And the response was, hi, Debbie, I'm sorry you haven't received a response in a timely manner. My colleagues are currently looking into this and I can't access the information fully while in the board meeting. We'll get the response sent to you as soon as possible. Thank you for bringing this to our attention. This is I'm laughing, but this is very, very serious stuff. But their, their arrogance is breathtaking. Um, and then you'd replied, thank you, Carly. I very much appreciate urgency in this. I note your definition of complaint has changed from the April board. Therefore, I submitted complaints re a service, yet still no response. And they, there's a reply from uh, CH. Well, this is to everyone. Oh, she's uh, celebrating successes too. So don't don't hammer us with complaints and what we haven't done. Let's pat ourselves on the back about uh, successes. And that bonhomie is one of the things that you've consistently picked up, Debbie, isn't it? They they have. I think you've used the expression the MHRA loving to congratulate themselves on what they haven't done. Well, you know, I've started taking um, travel sick pills before I watch the MHRA because it makes me feel so sick, really. I mean, it's self-congratulatory pats on the back. And um, I mean, I'm, I'm absolutely, 
I can't wait to tell everybody about the MHRA um, board meeting in more detail. And I know we're going to do that tomorrow because honestly, some of the things that happened yesterday at the MHRA board meeting were truly unforgettable, epic moments. It was a tour de force from the MHRA. We should all be clapping them, maybe outside on a Monday, get your saucepan lids to clap them. Honestly, it's disgraceful. It's it's you can't barely watch it. It's okay, Debbie. Well, we're going to say that for our viewers, we are going to show more of this tomorrow. So we'll just pop this up as a little ad. Join the UK Column News tomorrow, Thursday, the 23rd, when we'll be doing a much more in-depth analysis into matters, MHRA. Why do we need to do all this? Well, here's some blatant proof coming in now because we've got a headline from the mail. Rock musician's fiancé will become the first person in UK to receive £120,000 COVID vaccine damage payment after 48-year-old died from blood clot following AstraZeneca jab. What I find so obscene about this, Mike, is that's the value of your life, 120 grand. Yes, and of course, uh, Debbie, that first uh, payment is going to some someone as a result of a death. Uh, but nothing going to the people that actually need the ongoing support at this point in time. Yeah, exactly. And and I've spoken um, to some people from the COVID uh, vaccine uh, victims group today, and they understand that somebody else has also been awarded this. And again, it's for somebody that's deceased. Um, but really, that money is that the government suggests that you can use that money for a wider legal case if you're not satisfied with 120,000 as being final payment from the government. So, you know, we're going to see, uh, and if you're dead, then you are, you qualify because you're over the 60% disabled because you have to prove that you've you've um, succumbed to a 60% disability before you get um, accepted as your claim. So obviously those that have died will be the first to get it because they are 100% disabled. Yes. Yeah. Well, we're just going to put a tag on that uh, that headline from the mail there, if we can pop that back on the screen, because this this uh, mail article now tells us we have got deaths from the vaccine. So what do we need to know? We need to know how many people have been damaged or died. And this, of course, I suggest, Debbie, is why the MHRA, I'm sorry, I'm going to use this expression, are wetting themselves. Uh, because they know the public is now asking the right question, which is effectively, where is that quantitative risk assessment into the safety of safety risks of uh, vaccines? Where is it? Was one ever done? And we already know the, the answer, which is no. No, it wasn't, because according to Dr. Alison Cave, doing any risk assessment on a novel medicine or a novel drug is impossible because we're all different so the risk to to you for example brian or to you mike will be different from the risk to me or to a baby or to a, a more elderly person so it looks as though they haven't bothered to do the risk assessment just purely because it's too complicated yeah okay yeah. debbie thank you very much for that uh we've got more material to cover but we'll keep that for our special tomorrow uh, so that we can complete the news to, today. Mm. We're just about on time for that. And uh, I just add that uh, I did quite a lot of traveling yesterday. Uh, when I stopped for fuel, it was apparent that people in the petrol stations were not happy. 
with the prices as they were filling up their vehicles. And uh, I, th I think there's some real hostility out there to what's happening. Um, but uh, I managed to survive all the heat, even though my chocolate bar simply became liquid in the wrapper. Uh, but uh, I'm smiling about that because, of course, the Met Office would have us all believe we're under some massive um, health risk as a result. But by the same token, I know that it was particularly unpleasant and hot for people working in the care sector. So uh, and some of those people still forced to wear masks. Mm. So I'm going to say uh, we've got a lot of work to do to uh, overturn this increasingly draconian government system which has installed itself we'll be back in a few minutes on the main uh, uh, stream for uh, some extra indeed join us then thank you bye bye, -bye.